When Courtney and I were engaged, we had this date night planned. And as part of the date at the end, we were going to go get ice cream. And ice cream is uh, Courtney's favorite food. And so at the end of this date, we were going to go to her favorite ice cream place. And we were excited about that. And then while we were on the date, we received some bad news. And so we processed that together. We talked through that. And then there was a moment of pause and Courtney said, so do we still get ice cream? And we've laughed about that since because that's Courtney's personality, man. Like we can sit in the hard times for a little bit, but then it's like, we, let's get back to the joy. Let's get back to the ice cream. Do we still get ice cream? <clears throat> and I wonder if you've ever felt that way before in your relationship with God that in light of these bad things that are happening, in light of the hard news maybe that you've received, is there, is there still ice cream at the end of this? Is God still going to be faithful? Have you ever been tempted to question God's faithfulness because of the circumstances in your life? Maybe there's something going on with your family or a close friend Maybe there's something financially or something at work. Maybe just as you look at the world and the election and COVID and the economy, and there's a lot of questions about the future and a lot of uncertainty, and maybe that causes you to question like, God, is there ice cream at the end of all of this? At the end of this, are you still gonna be faithful to do something good? And I don't wanna ignore the obvious. This has been a difficult week for our church family. And there are all kinds of emotions that may come with that. But possibly one of them is just questioning, God, what's going to happen here? Are you still working here? Are you still going to be faithful here? The original readers of the book of Isaiah were in a very similar place. The original readers are the generation after they've experienced the destruction of their nation and their city, they can see the ruins around them. Everything has been totally destroyed. The palace is gone. The temple is gone. The walls have fallen down. The majority of the people have been exiled into captivity in a foreign nation. And they're looking around and they're going, God, is there ice cream at the end of this whole thing? God, are you still going to use us to be a light to the nations? Is there still hope that the whole world is going to worship our God? Because it looks like nothing but devastation. And there was a group of people. Isaiah calls them the remnant. There was a remnant, a group of people who wanted to trust God. They wanted to remain faithful. They wanted to continue to obey. But there was a little piece of them in the midst of the circumstances that caused them to question, God, are you still going to do what you said you would do? Today's sermon is not going to be a magic bullet that's going to fix all the problems in the world or especially not the problems in the room. But I do hope that today's sermon will answer this question. 
What should you do when your circumstances tempt you to question God's faithfulness? If you've ever been looking around at your circumstances and you've ever been tempted to question God's faithfulness, what should you do next? That's what Isaiah chapter 51 tells us. If you have a Bible, Isaiah chapter 51 is where we'll be today. And Isaiah is going to tell us two things that you should do if you're ever tempted to question God's faithfulness. Here's the first one. Look back. Look back. Look at verse 1. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were cut into the quarry from which you were dug. He's talking to these Israelites who want to believe, they want to remain faithful, and he's saying, don't forget where you came from. Don't forget what you're made of. Look to the rock from which you were cut. And what is he talking about? He tells us in verse 2. He says, look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah who gave birth to you. When I called him, he was only one. I blessed him and made him many. As Isaiah, as the Lord is speaking through Isaiah to these people who are questioning, God, are you still going to do this for us? Are you still going to keep your promises? Or is there ice cream? He says, look back at where you came from. Remember Abraham. Do you know Abraham's story? You probably do if you've been around church for a little while. If you're new to church, maybe you're like, ah, people talk about him. Who, who are we talking about? Abraham was just a normal guy. He wasn't following God. He wasn't even trying to seek the Lord. And God showed up to him in Genesis chapter 12 and said, Abraham, I'm going to, I'm going to bless you personally. That is, I'm going to make you rich and famous. He says, I'm going to Bless your family. You're going to have a son who's going to have sons, who's going to have sons and sons and sons and daughters and daughters and daughters. And from your family, you're going to have, it's just going to grow and it's going to turn into a nation. There's going to be millions of you. And I'm going to give you this land to live in. And I'm going to do something great for the whole world through you. And the Bible says that Abraham believed God. And because he trusted that God was really going to do that, God counted him righteous. But what's interesting is that it doesn't really seem that remarkable, just on the surface, that somebody would like believe that God would do that stuff for them. Why is that so remarkable for Abraham? Why is he praised for having faith? Like if God showed up to some random 22-year-old and was like, hey, you know what? I'm going to bless you. You're going to be famous and rich you're going to have a bunch of kids and they're going to grow into a huge family. And eventually the whole world's going to be better because of you. The average 22 year old's going, that sounds right. You know? Yeah. God, thank you for, for showering me with your blessings. Keep them coming. Let's do this thing. The reason it's remarkable that Abraham believed God's promise is because Abraham was not 22. Abraham was already old. And he didn't have a son. And not only was he old, but his wife was old. And 
Her womb, the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 4, was basically dead. He was all but dead, and her womb was dead. The days of having children are over, but God showed up and made a promise and said, you're going to have a son, and they believed him. In other words, God has always been a God who does impossible things. God has always been a God who can raise what's dead. And so they believed him. There were times of questioning God's faithfulness to his promise along the way. And so Abraham and Sarah, at one point in their life, were tired of waiting and trusting. And so they decided to take things into their own hands and they tried to build a family through another woman who happened to be living in the house with them. And that did not go well. It created more pain, more chaos, and a huge mess in their house, as you can imagine. But God remained faithful to them, even though they questioned his faithfulness. And God did what he promised to do. He gave them a son. And that son had a son, and it grew and grew and grew until there was a nation. And so Isaiah is saying here to the nation of Israel, listen, that's your story. That's how you got here. That's the rock you're cut from. That's what you're made of. You're made of God doing impossible things. You're made of God keeping his promise against seemingly impossible odds. Here's the thing. Following God, walking with him, has always required faith against the odds. It's always required betting against the odds. It's always required trusting God to do seemingly impossible things. That's not just Abraham's story. That's the Bible's story. Think about that. The Bible, this is not the only place where the Bible says to think back, to look back and remember what God has done. In the book of Psalms, it says regularly to remember how God brought you out of Egypt and into the land. This is also true in the New Testament in Hebrews chapter 11. It's recounting all of these stories of people in the Old Testament who trusted God against the odds and how it worked out for them in the end. Not all of them received the promises that God had made, but they all lived with faith that the promises would come. Think about Noah. God shows up to Noah. He's trying to do the right thing in the midst of a world where everybody else is pretty much doing the wrong thing. And God comes to Noah and he says, look, I see you doing the right thing and I'm going to judge the world by sending a flood. So here's what I need you to do. You're gonna build a boat so that we can save your family. And scholars debate how long it took Noah to build the boat. Some people think it was 120 years. Some people think it was 40 to 60 years. We don't know. But either way, that's a long time to be building a boat because God told you that it was going to flood. <laughs> and so think about everything that could have been going through Noah's mind when he's moving from the first board that it was going to take to build the boat to the boat. Between the board and the boat, there's a lot of time to question, God, are you really going to do this? Is there really ice cream at the end of all of this? But God did it. He was faithful to his promise. 
He did it for Abraham. He did it for Abraham's kids. He did it for Abraham's grandkids and his great-grandkids. Remember the story of Joseph. Remember the story of Moses. Remember the story of Moses leading the nation out of slavery and taking them to a land that they'd never been to. Think about all of the turns and, and difficulties that they went through, and yet Isaiah is speaking to a generation that could see that God had kept his promise because they knew of the land with millions of people in it. That's why he says in verse two, he was only one, but I've made him many. They knew that God had been faithful to keep his promise to Abraham. And so they're saying, look, Isaiah's saying, look, God was faithful in the past, look back. God will be faithful now for you in the future. Walking with God has always required faith in seemingly impossible circumstances. In fact, isn't this how you become a Christian? Becoming a Christian is trusting in God's promises, and that requires some really crazy beliefs, trusting God to do some really crazy stuff. Think about this. You don't become a Christian by believing in God's law and wanting to follow God's law and thinking, you know what? It makes sense that you shouldn't commit murder and commit adultery and lie and steal. Those things, those mess up society. So you should be a good person. Believing that stuff doesn't make you a Christian. Lots of people believe that stuff. And you don't become a Christian by just being born into a Christian family. And my family came to church and we used to read the Bible. And so I guess I'm a Christian. How do you become a Christian? You believe in Jesus. And that requires believing some really impossible things. Here's what, you, here's what Christians believe. That there is an invisible God who made all the things you can see. That is not a popular belief in the world. If you go talk to people at work, that's not like the number one, you know, thing that people believe. Being a Christian means that you believe that there's a, a God who's good, who invented the, who created the world, and that as humans, we have rebelled against him. And because of our rebellion, we deserve divine judgment. That is not a normal thing to believe, but that's what Christians believe. But God loves the world that he made. And so he makes a way for people to be forgiven and made right with him. And so what does he do? He sends his son to become a human. His name is Jesus. Jesus enters the world. He's truly God and he's truly man. He's completely God, completely man. How does that work? I don't know, it seems impossible. And then that God lives a sinless life. Think about that. That means he goes his whole life and he never does anything wrong. That seems impossible that someone could do that. And yet that's what Christians believe. And then after he'd lived a sinless life, he goes to the cross and he's executed. And somehow his death on the cross makes it possible 
for all the people in the world who trust in him to be forgiven of their sins and have eternal life. You see how seemingly impossible that is? And then Jesus doesn't stay dead, but he's raised from the dead. He comes back to life. He's resurrected. He ascends to be with his father and he promises someday to return to judge the living and the dead and remake the world to make all things right. That's Christianity. That's what Christians believe. That's not like super advanced Christianity. That's just the basics of being a Christian. And do you see how seemingly impossible that stuff seems? So to be a Christian, to follow Jesus is to believe in the supernatural. It's not that we don't have reasons for trusting God. We have lots of reasons to believe that those seemingly impossible things are true, but we still have to bet against the odds to be a Christian. And so it's no different when you begin walking with God. If you can trust in that stuff, then you can trust God in the midst of your circumstances now. And that's what Isaiah is trying to show the people. Hey, listen, I know that the things around you right now look chaotic and it seems impossible that God could ever keep his promise. But don't forget that at one time, Abraham was one. Don't forget that at one time, Jesus was dead. But God raises the dead. So if you're ever tempted to question God's faithfulness because of the circumstances around you, look back and remember what God has done. What might that look like? What might it look like for you to begin to look back, to to intentionally set aside time to remember what God has done? What would that look like in your life? Let me give you a few ideas. Corporate worship is one of the ways that we remember what God has done. There are a lot of reasons that we meet on Sundays and gather. But one of the reasons is to remind each other about what's true. One of the reasons is to remind each other about what God has done in the past. When we read the scripture, when we pray the scripture, when we sing the scripture like we've done this morning, when we listen to the scripture be preached, and when we see the scripture through baptism and the Lord's Supper, what are we doing? We're reminding ourselves of what God has done. We're looking back. We're remembering God's faithfulness to us in the past. Corporate worship is not the only way to do this. What if you began to read scripture like it's your family heritage? You know how some people are like really into ancestry and they're like ancestry.com and they're paying to have like DNA swabs and find out that we're from this part of the world or, you know, whatever. What if you began to read the scriptures like it was your family heritage? So when you read about Ruth and Esther, And Peter and Paul, it's like, those are your grandparents in the faith. What if that's the lens through which you began to read the scriptures to help you remember what God has done? What if you began to read church history? Now, this is not something that was encouraged really when I was growing up. I didn't know anything about church history until I got to college. But in college, I had to take a class on it. And 
I was amazed at how reading about the church fathers, these are people who were Christians from like 100 to 400 AD. These are people who had incredible faith in the midst of some crazy circumstances. In fact, these are people who put language to some of the beliefs that Christians hold, some of the things we just rehearsed about what it means to be a Christian. That's language that was put together by people thousands of years ago. Reading their stories is so encouraging and interesting. Um, If you are interested in that and you just want a, a good place to start, here's a book that I would recommend to you. It's called Getting to Know the Church Fathers. Getting to Know the Church Fathers by Brian Litfin. Litfin, L-I-T-F-I-N. Getting to Know the Church Fathers. He'll tell you about people like Ignatius and Justin Martyr and Irenaeus and Tertullian and Origen and Athanasius and John Chrysostom and Augustine. Each chapter is just about one of those people. Super interesting. But those all seem kind of academic. What are some other ways that you could begin to look back and remember what God has done? What if you just began to tell your story to people? Do you know how, have you ever had the experience of having to like prepare your testimony if you're a Christian or, or just give a presentation where you're gonna have to tell your story and it causes you to think back on your life and when you look back, not everything that you've been through was really fun. But when you look back and you begin to see things that, that you were doing, places that you were living, when you look back, you see that there really is some ice cream along the way. And when you tell your story, especially your faith story, it will help you and others remember what God has done in the past. So you could tell your story to someone. You could also tell the church's story to someone. Some of you have been at this church for a long, long time. And you could walk around the building with some people who are maybe newer to the church and you could share story after story of things that God did literally in this building. Do you remember when this room used to have a lot more fuzz on the ceiling? (laughs) And do you remember some of the things that God did here. I'm, I'm serious about this. This would be an excellent thing to do. If you've been here for a while, literally walk around the building with some people and just begin reminiscing about stories that have happened in this building, things that God has done here in your life. Some of you became a Christian in one of the classrooms in this building. Think about that. Some of you, your kids learned the books of the Bible for the first time in one of the classrooms in this building. Some of you learned how to use your gifts in ministry. You literally discovered that you had gifts to use in ministry because of something in this church. Walk around and tell those stories. It's a way of looking back and remembering what God has done in the past. Here's the last thing you can do. You can do a lot of things, but my last suggestion, I should say is you can do what I call a Thanksgiving exercise. A Thanksgiving exercise. Here's what you do. Take a piece of paper and a pen and just start writing down people, places, and things that you're thankful for. Now, if you really begin to think about some of these things and 
how there really are gifts that you are not responsible for, it will blow your mind and you will begin to, to renew your trust in the Lord. Here's what I mean. Take, if you're married, take your spouse as an example. If they're a, a person that you're gonna thank God for, think about the hundreds and thousands of events that had to transpire for you and your spouse to meet and get married. Like your spouse's parents had to somehow meet so that your spouse could be born. And think about the hundreds of and thousands of events that took place for that to happen. Well, they migrated here in 1840 and then from there they moved over to the east side and then Think about all of the events that had to take place just for your spouse and you to meet. It's not just you controlling your life. There is something greater directing your life. Think about your kitchen table. <laughs> okay, now depending on where your table is from, if you built your kitchen table, this exercise will not take you as long, okay? But think about the hundreds of things, the thousands of events that had to transpire just for your kitchen table to make it into your house. If you've got a wooden table, somebody had to, to think about, you know what, we should, if you ever bought your, your kitchen table at like a, a furniture store, somebody had to found the store. There was some long process of a tree getting cut down and it being made and cut into the right proportion and being shipped on some truck and somebody loaded that truck and somebody brought it to the thing. And literally you could not even figure out all of the things that had to happen just for your kitchen table to make it into your house. Especially if you have a plastic table, somebody had to invent plastic. There's chemistry I think involved. I don't, I don't know for sure, but there's like a lot of stuff that had to take place just for you to have a kitchen table in your house stuff that you had no control over. And when you begin to look back and thank God for the things that he's done, you'll begin to have your mind literally blown at how God has done impossible things for you. So if you're ever tempted to question God's faithfulness, the first thing you need to do is look back. Remember what God has done in the past. Here's the second thing you need to do. Look forward. Look forward. Look at verse three. For the Lord will comfort Zion. He will comfort all her waste places and he will make her wilderness like Eden and her desert like the garden of the Lord. Joy and gladness will be found in her. Thanksgiving and melodious song. Do you see what God is saying here to his people? He's saying, look, as you, as you look around right now, yeah, all you see is ruin and wasteland and death. But here's what God does. And here's what God has always done. Remember the rock you were cut from? God raises the dead. He takes graves and he turns them into gardens. That's what God does. And notice that he references here, a particular garden. He says he will make her wilderness like Eden. What is Eden? Eden is where everything started, Genesis chapter two and three. 
Do you remember last week we talked about God's vision for the world and we said we were gonna think about it in three categories. If you weren't here, I'll catch you up real quick. Three categories to think about God's vision for the world. There's humans, there's nature, and there's culture. Humans, nature, and culture. God's vision for humanity was that they would have a deep friendship with him and with each other and that they would experience joy on the earth. That was his vision for humanity. His vision for nature was that it would be ruled over, governed wisely by humans under their authority. And his vision for culture is that it would be a place of peace and prosperity for all as we work hard together on the earth. That's God's vision for the world, humanity, nature, and culture. And all of that stuff is is symbolized in Eden. Because Eden is the place where there was no sin. Eden is the place where there was no rebellion against God and his vision. Eden was the place where God's vision was going to be realized. But you know the story. We've rebelled against God. We've fallen from Eden. And now there is a curse on the world so that humans don't experience that always. And nature is not like that always. And culture is not like that always. Instead, there's brokenness and dysfunction because we've lost Eden. There's a curse. God is saying here that someday, look forward to the day when he will reverse the curse, when he will turn the grave back into the garden, and he will transform all things. That is why Jesus has come. Jesus came to the earth to reverse the curse and turn graves into gardens. This is why in one of the most famous hymns of all time, it's called Joy to the World. We normally sing this at Christmas time, but it was actually written about Jesus's second coming. Here's the third verse. No more let sins and sorrows grow nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. How far does the curse go? How much does sin affect things? It affects everything, humanity, nature, and culture. And so what will Jesus's work entail? When Jesus returns, he is going to transform. He's going to redeem. He's going to restore all things, humans, nature, and culture. And the hope here, if you're ever tempted to question God's faithfulness because of the circumstances around you, look forward to the day when Jesus will come again and make all things new. Can you imagine what that would be like? Seriously, can you imagine? What would it be like to be a restored human? 2 Corinthians 5 says that everyone who's in Christ is a new creation. The old has come, or the old is gone, the new has come. And that is true now, but it's not fully experienced now. What would it be like for Jesus to return and you to be a fully transformed, a fully restored human. It would mean that your character is fully transformed. 
so that the, the thoughts that you have sometimes, and you're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I'm thinking about that. Or the patterns that you have, the habits that you have that are destructive to you and to others, those things will be transformed and you will be renewed so that those things are not even something you desire anymore. It's not just that you'll have to exercise self-control for always because it's like, oh man, we're, we're gonna have to, I'm always gonna have to be giving myself this pep talk not to do this thing. Instead, you're gonna be transformed. You're not even gonna wanna do the negative, destructive thing anymore. Can you imagine what that would be like to be a restored human in that way? But humans are not just the inside of us, our character. Humans are also physical. We have a body. And when Jesus returns, he comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. And that means that he will also renew and transform and restore your body. Listen to Philippians chapter three, verse 21. But our citizenship is in heaven. This is the previous verse. And we eagerly wait for a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's the verse. He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. When Jesus came to the earth, he came physically. When he died on the cross, he died physically. When he was raised from the dead, he rose physically. He even ate a piece of fish in Luke chapter 24. If you belong to Jesus, your future is not just some ethereal existence where you'll float around forever and be bored. Your future is a bodily existence where you will be transformed. And here's why this is such good news for you. Some of you already know what it's like for your body to begin to decay. Your back hurts just because you slept the wrong way and you threw a football and then like, oh, your shoulder's killing you. And your memory's not what it used to be. Your hearing, your sight are not what they used to be. You know what it's like for your body to begin to decay. And here's your future if you belong to Jesus. Your body will be transformed, renewed. What's destined for the grave is gonna be turned into a garden. Some of you have missed out on being able to do some of the things you would have loved to do in life because of some kind of physical limitation that your body has. The future for you is not just getting rid of that old body and floating around forever in an ethereal existence. The future for you is that what God did for Jesus on Easter will be done for you when he comes again. You'll be able to swim and climb and snowboard and dance and sing and hug and cook because he'll return and make your body new. Can you imagine what that'll be like? He's not just gonna do this for your body, he's gonna do this for nature. Romans chapter eight, verses 19 says, uh, 19 and following, for the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. Verse 20, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in the hope, verse 21, that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage to decay into the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. The future is a future with clean air and clean water. The future is a future where animals 
you get to play with them and you can, the lion and the lamb lay down together and you can put your toddler in a lion's, in a lion's pit, in a snake's pit. That's the future because nature will be restored. It'll be fully transformed and culture will be restored. Listen to Revelation chapter 21, verses three through five. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them and will be their God. Verse four, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Verse five, then the one seated on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. If you belong to Jesus, though you can see the grave in your life and though you are destined for the grave, your future is one of a resurrection. Your future is a future with a restored body, restored character, and restored nature, building a restored culture on the earth. That is what you're destined for as a follower of Jesus. So if you're ever tempted to question God's faithfulness because of the circumstances in your life, look back at what God has done and look forward to what God will do when Jesus returns. Let's pray. Father, we praise you for being a God who is faithful. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and we praise you for that. God, we ask that that you would help us trust you. That this sermon is not a fix for all the problems, but I do hope that it would be an encouragement to someone in the room, someone watching online. God, as they, as they process what's happening here in the church and maybe in their life and around the world, in our country, as they process that God, would you not allow their heart to question your faithfulness, but would you help them look back and look forward? Would you be honored by how we live in response? It's in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand and sing this hymn with us?